You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 386, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Isroff. And I actually recently released an ebook, Ruby Garbage Collection, in under two hours. As the name suggests, it gives a comprehensive overview of Ruby Garbage Collection, covering topics ranging from the algorithms and strategies Ruby GC uses to the future of Ruby GC in an approachable way. And I have a discount code, which I'm really excited about, for 10% off specifically for listeners. We'll link it in the show notes, but it's at gemma.dev slash book slash the Ruby on Rails podcast. I have already purchased my copy and it's fantastic listeners. And it's really generous of Gemma to be offering that code. Hey, Gemma, guess what? What? We are not alone today. Isn't that exciting? It is. Who, who do we have? Well, let's see. Danny Israf was born in South Africa and grew up in Europe and New York. After failing miserably in his dream of becoming a professional soccer player, Danny did the next best thing and started writing about soccer for a soccer app in Berlin. He transitioned from content to product a few years ago and has been trying to figure out what product management actually means ever since. Amongst his proudest and most impressive achievements is being Gemma's older and still marginally wiser brother. Welcome to the show, Danny. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you very much, Brittany. Pleased to be here. Danny, have you been on a podcast before? I have, in fact. It's been a little while, so I might be a bit rusty, but I used to do, as part of my job for the soccer app, I used to do a soccer podcast. And I'm a little bit nervous, so I might make a few mistakes, but I'm safe in the knowledge that we can re-edit afterwards. And I know this because we used to have a little bit of a foul-mouthed Irishman as our podcast host, so we definitely did use a bit of editing. So I think I should be good. Perfect. And I think you will be good. Now, Danny, since you're not a developer, but a product manager, which I'm so excited to dig into today, I would love to hear the origin story of how you became a PM. Yeah, well, it's safe to say that my sister Gemma and I have multiple different versions of this story. In her one, she's the protagonist. I'm sure we'll get to that in a second. In my version, I actually started, as you mentioned in the intro, writing about soccer for this startup in Berlin, this soccer app. We were actually just getting our newsroom, our content team up and running at the time. And we were very scrappy as startups tend to be in the beginning and knew basically nothing. We had no processes. Our tools were really poor. So we were really inefficient. And this actually drove me nuts as someone who understood a little bit, mostly through Jenna, the power of tech. I knew things didn't have to be this way. So I started spending more and more time, even outside of work devising ways and tools and processes and little hacks that could make our content team more efficient. And that then eventually morphed into a more formal role as something like a a tech and product liaison for the content team. And at some point, a a product management position, an entry-level product management position opened up. And like a, a lot of product managers who I now know, when I heard about it, I had never heard of product management. I had no idea what it was. But it sounded cool and dynamic and intriguing and impactful above everything else. And so that appealed to me. And fortunately, at my company at the time, we had a product management lead who believed very strongly in the idea that successful product managers are built more from a a certain mindset, a certain problem-solving mindset than from experience or formal training. And he put his faith in me and I was officially a product manager. Amazing. So for context, I am a former product manager. So I came up through development as a non-technical product manager, and then I learned how to code. But there are a lot of developers out there who have come through boot camps or have gone through university 
and really haven't gotten to interact with a product manager. And so when they're starting their first role, they might not know what a product manager does. So how would you explain product management to a developer? Yeah, so I definitely need a little caveat here. Product management, I think, like anything else, or maybe even more so than a lot of other positions out there, varies widely from company to company and from position to position. So I can only speak from my own experience, of course. I think with respect to developers, the way I would frame product management is that it's the product manager's job to work together with the developers and various stakeholders actually across the company, both internally and externally, to prepare and prioritize work items in such a way that developers can focus on actually writing the code that solves problems for users and propels the company forward. So I think, again, with respect to developers, that's not intended in any way to diminish developers' abilities to solve problems, actually quite the opposite. I think Personally, and very plainly speaking, I see a developer's time as the most valuable and precious resource that there is in a tech company, right? Because a tech company can actually, in theory, can do without every other role in the company and still have a product out there as long as someone is physically writing code. So I think product managers are there in many ways to kind of maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of this precious resource that is developer time. Again, in such a way that allows the company to move forward and solve major problems for the users in the most impactful and efficient way. Well, you definitely appeal to our audience by saying that we're a precious resource. So thank you for that. (laughs) And I totally agree because it is a very expensive resource and you want to make sure that you're using it wisely. So it is a family affair today. So I have to ask if this statement is true. When you called Gemma about a job opening as a product manager at a company, you asked if you would be a good fit. And is it true she literally told you a year before that you should look for product manager jobs and it went in one ear and not the other? Oh, absolutely. So this is what I mentioned before. Allegedly, my very brilliant forward thinking sister had already planned out my whole product management career for me long before I even knew what product management was. To her credit, I like to think she was just repaying the favor because, and actually this is a a little known fact, maybe it's come up on the podcast before. I think Gemma will confirm it, but Gemma actually first took up coding in high school because her, again, marginally wiser older brother had done computer science and she just wanted to follow in, in my footsteps. And maybe she still does. Maybe she'll become a product manager one day. But I think, no, on a serious note, we both owe each other a lot. And I think are very grateful for each other's continued support. That was sweet. It is true. Same reason I took up soccer when I was a kid as well. I just wanted to be like my wiser, cooler, older brother. And at least one of those things has really worked out for you, Jeff. Definitely not the soccer one either for me. Danny, and how does a product manager decide what to build? For me, it's actually the key question. Product management, I think at least in a mature functional company is really a game of decisions. And the what to do next decision is, of course, the most important of them all. And in many ways, it can make or break companies. And I think if you're a good product manager, you're balancing many factors in in this decision, probably, I think, a little bit more than people even realize. And it's a constant process, of course. So the entire agile philosophy, this idea that companies should be nimble and able to react quickly is based on the premise that we live in a fast-changing world. And you have to be reevaluating all the time in order to adapt to changing conditions and pinpointing and really framing the problems that you face and putting some potential solutions on the table. So at this point, it really it becomes a, a prioritization exercise, right? In any company, there are a million things you could do to improve your product. 
And then you're weighing roadmap items against each other based on all these factors. And I think you start with the most obvious ones. So people who are kind of familiar with Agile will, will be familiar with these. What's the expected impact for users? What's the expected impact of the potential roadmap? Uh, item for the company? What's the cost in terms of effort? Is there some sort of urgency involved? But then I think if you're a decent product manager, there's a lot more going on kind of one level deeper. And to give some examples of the things that might go on in a product manager's head when making these roadmap decisions is things like, how might this item affect team morale or team chemistry? How might stakeholders in the company react to prioritizing this item? And how might that affect their decision-making in the future? Or maybe how might prioritizing this item affect a relationship that you believe is key to the company's functioning, right? All companies have politics. That's just the nature of our society. And really good product managers will really sit there and consider these minute details as they're evaluating, right down to things like, will an individual developer who you sense is at risk of leaving the company be on board with this decision and find this roadmap item worthwhile and engaging. So there really is a, a lot of little details going on in, in this prioritization exercise. And of course, as with any other decision you make, you have to live with the consequences. You can only typically really do one thing at a time. Tinny, when, if ever, do you bring developers into that prioritization and decision-making exercise? Yeah, it's really a fine balance because on the one hand, as I mentioned earlier, I think developer time is absolutely the most precious thing in a tech company. And, and you really do have to, as a product manager, protect that at all costs, not only from stakeholders around the company, but also from yourself. As you're both developers, as you'll know, the cost of context switching and having useless meetings or even not so useless meetings is really high. So you want to avoid that. On the other hand, the more buy-in and the more expertise you have from developers, the better your decisions will be. And I think typically, once you have a good idea of the potential solution, and it's really a matter of getting the technical details in order to make an effort estimate, that's when you would want to clue in the developers, have that conversation with them, see what they think of it, see what risks they can see, those kind of things. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. So really just, again, thinking about their time first and foremost. And Danny, what aspects of product management do you yourself find the most exciting? Yeah, so for me, I think first and foremost, what attracted me was how dynamic and multifaceted it, it is. I think when I was writing about soccer previously, that was cool and I loved it, but every day tends to be quite similar. And as a product manager, you engage with so many different parts of the company internally, externally. One day you might be researching legal things to adjust the copy of a contract. And the next day you might be talking to a major industry player about what your product can offer them. And some days you might even write some code yourself. You, know, you really never know. And I love that fact. I love the dynamism. And then I think second is just like anyone else. I find a lot of gratification in having an impact and moving the proverbial needle. And I think one of the best feelings in product management is getting to sit back and say, wow, we really nailed that decision or we nailed that process and look at what it's brought us and look at how it's improved the lives of our users and, and our own lives. And when that's reflected in something tangible and tangible numbers or KPIs or OKRs or whatever it is, then that's even more gratifying. So that's definitely also one of the most exciting parts of product management. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So seeing the results and having those affirm the work you and your team are doing. 
Absolutely. Have you ever had to break the news? I know sometimes you have to switch different priorities in the middle of a project or something like that. Have you ever had to break the news to an engineering team that they had to stop what they were working on and switch priorities? Yeah, absolutely. All the time. And I feel terrible about it. I think we're humans. Nobody likes to be kind of dragged one way and then swung back in the other direction. And if you do that too often, of course, it can be really hard to get people on board with that. Again, even if you are confident that this is the right thing to do, I think as humans, we want and we expect stability and consistency and the optics of just switching tack like that are are really bad. And and then, of course, it's also in a way an admission of a, a mistake. And the worst part about having to do this is, and this has happened to me before, you have to look someone in the eye and say what they just spent the last couple of weeks doing was really a waste of their lifetime that they're unfortunately not going to get back. So there's no nice way of doing this. The only thing I would say is that in a team where trust has been built up over a long period of time, and you have a ideally a track record that speaks to that. You definitely have some credit built up with the team. And I think it makes it easier for everyone to understand and be professional about it. That makes sense. I am curious, though, at your company, because we talked about how product management roles are very different depending on the company that you're at. And I think you would agree with me that building great product is so important. But if your customers and even the staff aren't aware of the new features that you're shipping, you might as well not build it. And so part of that also becomes product marketing. And so I'm curious in your role, are you also responsible for that? Or do you have someone whose role that is? So in my role, I am also responsible for that. It's a really tricky topic. And I think a lot of companies struggle with user communication. And as you mentioned, product marketing. We live in a world of increasingly short attention spans, Brittany, and just getting people to use or interact with your product at all can be tricky. Getting them to then take the time to, I don't know, read about a new feature or go through some sort of new feature onboarding process. And I don't have any secret sauce. Unfortunately, I think just like uh, communicating in any other facet of modern day life, I tend to try to keep things short, sweet, visual if possible. But yeah, it's, it's a tricky part of the job. No question. Well, Danny, I wanted to have you on the podcast literally for secret sauce. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. But in all seriousness, you're totally right, because we will release a new feature at Textus. We think it's going to make all these waves, like all this hoopla. We'll send out an email around it. And then like maybe a couple of customers will use it. And then we've really had to understand that there's a long tail in getting people to change their habits, get excited about a new feature possibly retrain their staff in order to introduce a new workflow. And there's definitely a lot of tricks into making that happen. Yeah, as I mentioned, no secret sauce on this one, unfortunately, Brittany. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is one of the easiest decisions you can make. As an engineering lead on a tech stack that supports a UI, API, mobile application, and Chrome extension, It is awesome to have all of my error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and check-in monitoring in one place. No matter how great your team is, your code is going to have errors. Honey Badger empowers your whole team to own the features they ship. Honey Badger sends you alerts real-time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. 
Head over to HoneyBadger.io and discover how HoneyBadger is used by tens of thousands of pragmatic developers and companies of all sizes who want to focus on shipping great, error-free products. How about feature flagging? Is that something that you're involved with? You know, when your company produces a new feature, is it available to all customers or is there a strategy around which customers get which feature early? Definitely a strategy, especially so on the app side of things, which isn't actually where I spend my time. These days, I'm responsible for a different part of the product at the moment. But on the app side of things, especially when you have many users and technical systems that can be under strain, you definitely want to be careful about rolling out new features. And so typically, at least in my company, the product managers will work together with the leads of the engineering teams to devise rollout strategies that make sense both from a product and a technical risk point of view. So if you have a new feature, you're not sure about the product impact, how it might, for example, impact users' engagement with the content, you definitely want to be careful. And if you're not sure about the impact on the tech infrastructure, for example, how the systems might hold up, you also want to be careful. So that's, I think, completely standard across the industry. It goes in line with the agile philosophy, right? You want to learn as much as possible, as small a risk and resource cost as possible, as early as possible so that you can switch tack if you have to. Do you tend to do a percentage-based rollout whenever you're enabling a new feature flag, or is there a certain type of customer that you've identified that you tend to introduce new features too early? Yeah, so it really depends on the part of the business. And in, in, I can go into a little bit more detail. I work on kind of B2B products at the moment having to do with soccer con- So my products face the content creators themselves at the moment. And in that situation, I'm quite lucky because in my part of the company, we don't have that many users because we're dealing with content partners and not end users. And that means that we can kind of reach out individually to our users, our content partners, and basically just be upfront with them and say, hey, we've got something new. Would you mind taking a look, testing it, giving us some feedback? That's a really lucky position to be in. It's not typical. For example, on the app side, when they do deal with end users, and there are literally millions and millions of pretty anonymous users out there, they typically work with very small percentage-based rollouts. So they'll start with something like rolling out to 1% of users or maybe even 1% of users in a certain market, in a certain language, and then extending that to 5%, 10%, 25%, 50%, and then eventually reaching 100% of users. You're right. You are in such a lucky position that you can reach out to those customers and get their feedback really early on. That is definitely an enviable position. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. From a product management perspective, it's actually a dream. Talking to users and getting real feedback, honest feedback from real users is a privilege that not everyone has yet. So at Texas, we have been interviewing both for a VP of product and for product manager roles. And I've noticed from a lot of the resumes that some of them are past engineers who decided to pivot into product. And you can see that going vice versa, where product managers will learn how to code. So I'm curious for the listeners who tend to be developers for this podcast, what advice do you have for aspiring product managers and especially for engineers who might consider pivoting into product? One thing I will say just on that topic, Brittany, is I think engineers are really well positioned, both because they already have this, at least conceptual technical knowledge that I think is really undervalued in product management, and because they understand, presumably, how engineers will react to things and how to relate to engineers. And I think that engineer product manager relationship is also so important 
and oftentimes undervalued. I think the big difference for engineers is that it requires a little bit of a mindset shift. I'm sure engineers like product managers can differ, but engineers, I think, typically will be more used to working maybe on their own or spending the majority of their time working on their own and producing tangible outputs, right? So as an engineer, you write some code and you release it. And that's a product. That's a thing you can see and feel and interact with. Product management is a lot of talking to people. It's a lot of sitting and thinking. It's a lot of background thinking. And the thing about that is that the tangible output of your individual work is practically non-existent. And that can be a little bit frustrating. I think we all want to see the fruits of our labor. And in product management, it's really a game of patience that can require a little bit of a, a mindset shift in that way. And I think engineers should be definitely prepared for that. And along with, I think in many cases, again, speaking plainly, a little bit of a, a salary reduction. Personally, I love product management and can highly endorse it. I hope that's come through in, in what I have to say. It's not something that's offered or easily learned in any way formally in a classroom. And my advice to people typically is that you can actually apply product management principles. And, and again, it really is more of a mindset than anything else in almost any department in a company or even in your personal life. So if people feel that they might be interested in product management, I would encourage them to start by taking a look at the problems that they face in their own department at work, looking for the inefficiencies a little bit like the origin story that I mentioned earlier, trying to identify bottlenecks and then proactively looking for solutions to these problems. So if you're in I don't know, HR, for example, and you're using a Google sheet to track the candidates and there's a lot of manual data entry or something. Maybe think about how you might be able to automate some of that data entry or even take a step back and think is what's really the value in all this data? Do we really need it? What parts could we cut and make more efficient? And I think you could do that in your personal life. Like I said, if you have a personal to-do list, you know, really spend a few minutes every now and again, going up and down the list, considering if each item is really necessary, how can you prioritize them so that the most impactful, lowest effort items are at the top? And I think there are really many ways to get used to this mindset of product management. And that's why I would recommend people start out. Danny, at the beginning of that answer, you were talking about that it can be really beneficial to be a product manager who knows how to write some code. And as an engineer, you're obviously bringing that ability to the role of product management. Can you talk about your own ability to write code and familiarity with that and how that affects your daily work? See, I'm very lucky, Gemma, because I have a superstar a developer as a sister on speed dial at any moment. And on a slightly more serious note, I've worked quite hard and taken courses. And you'll know, Gemma, because I've spent a lot of time badgering you with questions to improve my technical ability. And I think, as mentioned, it's a really underrated asset to a product manager. And I think something that's kind of not talked about enough and oftentimes stepped around. But I personally, I'm yet to see a, a world-class product manager who isn't at least conversant in the technical concepts that underpin the product that they're building. And there are a few reasons for this. One of them is that it helps with decision-making. So I'm a, a little bit of a a sports guy, obviously, and I can borrow an analogy from soccer is you wouldn't want a, a soccer manager or a coach or a front office person making strategic soccer decisions who, who didn't have experience actually playing the game and understanding the nuances. Having a technical knowledge allows a product manager to skip some of the kind of explanatory steps. And if you can, I don't know, save half a day by not having to sit there and explain to the product manager why 
X architectural decision could have Y consequences further down the road, then you're really saving time and that allows you to move quicker as a team. And then the second thing I would add to that is, I think I mentioned it as well earlier, the trust and relationship between engineers and product is really important to a high functioning company. And if the engineers, in my experience, at least if the engineers have a little bit of respect for the product manager's technical knowledge and the fact that they've put an effort to kind of understand their world, that can really make a difference in, in that relationship. And I think for those two reasons, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time getting to the point where I am generally quite comfortable with the technical concepts and understanding the decision making that goes into coding. And I think that's benefited me hugely. That all makes a lot of sense to me. I think one more reason that I've seen with you that you haven't highlighted is it allows you to protect developers' time even more. I know the other day you had a support ticket come through looking at an API and you were able to kind of look at that ticket, figure it out, and send something back to the customer without having to go through your engineering team. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I forgot to mention that, but that's very much the case as well. I'm clapping over here for that ability. (laughs) He's a great PM. I can definitely say that. Danny, to the more on the engineer and PM relationship, what can engineers or people listening, do you have any concrete tips to work more effectively with their PMs? I do. I think I would start this answer probably by shouting out the engineers on my team at my company at at OneFootball because they're incredible and we have a great little unit. And I think that really does help us to achieve great things. And I really do absolute credit where it's due. I know I'm kind of playing a little bit to the audience here, but I've really learned a lot about engineers from not just about work, but, but about life and, and various things. So love interacting with them. I think in my own case, among the many things that I'm grateful to the engineers that I work with for is that they care deeply, not just about their own code and their own work and their own kind of little lane, if you like, but they care about the overall success of the team and the, and the company. And I think that's key in the engineer product manager relationship, understanding that we're all going for the same goal and having the the flexibility around that. I think what I really appreciate is when engineers are open and honest and engaged and are then in a position to hold everyone accountable, but especially me. So in, in my team, for example, it happens all the time. The engineers are aware of kind of my faults, if you like, and that I have a tendency sometimes to radically cut corners and they'll take that into account. So we'll have a, a sprint planning meeting. And at some point, one of the engineers will, will just speak up and say, Danny, this is an absolute mess. What are we doing here? Let's take a step back. Let's discuss it properly. And I really do appreciate that. So I appreciate the engineers will challenge me and challenge my way of doing things. And yeah, I would say that kind of open, honest dialogue, taking initiative, engaging in a constructive way will be really appreciated by most product managers. And I I would definitely encourage them. That's a great tip for almost any working relationship to keep the dialogue open. No, absolutely. That's absolutely true. I think it just can tend to be the case in this specific relationship that maybe certain engineers, for whatever reason, will just feel like, here's what's been decided. My job Mm -hmm. is to execute it rather than my job is to engage and and highlight red flags or really challenge this decision or, or put my knowledge forward into a product manager's blind spot. So I do appreciate that. And Danny, do you have any recommendations for our listeners for books or resources that taught you about product management? That's a good question. I would start first and foremost with kind of the classic 
just understanding the agile software development process. And I think engineers have an advantage again here of typically being quite familiar with it. That was something that I, I really had to grasp in the beginning. So the classic book for me is Scrum by Jeff Sutherland. So the art of doing twice the work in half the time, which introduced me to the concepts. And it's nice, I think, to return to these concepts every once in a while. So even if you know them, you are familiar with them. Going back and really understanding, I don't know, what is the value of a user story and why do we do things a certain way and refreshing yourself on that is valuable every once in a while. I think product management is one of those jobs where you can get lost in the details very quickly and very easily and taking a step back and kind of reminding yourself of the fundamentals every once in a while is important. I completely agree. The fundamentals are critical. And last question, Danny, how can listeners follow you? So they definitely can't. I, yeah, I hardly exist on the internet and I'm not that interesting anyway. But what I would rather point people towards is first and foremost, your book, Gemma. So I'd plug that again and just let all the listeners know that you worked very hard on it. And I learned a lot from reading it. So I'm sure actual developers could learn even more. And I would also maybe highlight just while I have the chance, the fact that my company, OneFootball, is of course like every other company in the world at the moment, doing some major hiring. We don't work in Ruby, unfortunately, but if any engineers happen to be passionate about soccer and are curious for a potential adventure in Europe where we're based, then definitely check out the One Football Jobs page. So that's One Football spelled out, one word. And yeah, that's really it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on, Danny, and for those kind words at the end there. It was really a privilege and a pleasure to be able to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I was thinking to myself, I really don't get the opportunity to talk about product management enough and definitely not outside of work. I think part of it is because it is so abstract and so novel to so many people. So this has been really cool. Thanks a lot to both of you. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.